program is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed are those of the panelists and not necessarily those of Sengents, Glamour Connection, Van Garrett Media, their respective management, contractors, or employees. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media. Welcome to the Share Your Hotness podcast. Share your hotness. Now, here's your host, Lita Green. So welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with my guest, Denise Bossart. Now, Denise and I met about two minutes ago. You were referred to me um, by a dear friend of mine and slash mentor, Dr. Paul. And you wrote a book on, here, hold up your book title so I can read it like I'm a pro. It says Thriving After Sexual Abuse, and which is really cool because I wrote a book, Love Me Too, um, finding a happy and fulfilling life after sexual abuse. And so we are like on the same page. So Dr. Paul was like, we need to put these two women together to have a conversation. So knowing that we are old friends who go minutes back, right? <laughs> we, we, uh, Soul sisters have- immediately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, I love Dr. Paul. So I always love the referrals and this is all about having genuine and real conversations with people. And I love like juicy slobbering that we are having these conversations because looking at you, cause we are on zoom. Um, you are not 20. Mm-hmm. Are you 29 and holding or do you out your age? Oh, I out my age. I'm over 50. Okay. So, so I'm 47. <laughs> so we both grew up in a world where we weren't supposed to talk about these things. They were inappropriate, mm-hmm. you know? So how did you get, cause I know my process, but I would love to hear your process and maybe I'll break the ice with, I had, you know, family that came to me and said, I can't talk about it. And, you know, I can't write the book and mm-hmm. um, people who, you know, it's very, Oh, you know, just a lot of, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you kind of know who I am what I am. I'm going to speak the truth. So there, mm-hmm. did you have a public persona before writing the book or is this your first coming into the public eye? Really the first time coming into the public eye in this way, I've done a lot of creative things. I, I actually wrote a fictionalized version of my childhood abuse in a dark urban paranormal fantasy that uh, award-winning book that I self-published. No big and deal, award-winning book. Award-winning, gotta throw that in there, right? Very yes. proud of that one. And As and, you should. And it was, uh, it was funny, I wrote it because I was inspired by a dream. I wrote this great story. And then afterwards kind of realized, oh my gosh, that was kind of like a fictionalized version of my abuse story. Um, so that I do a lot of art, a lot of photography, award-winning in artists and photographers. So, that part of my creative expression is out there. But otherwise, I'm kind of an anonymous person who's never really wanted to shout out about what's happened to me. Very few people to this point in my life have known about it because I've been very select with who I trusted to share my story with. And this is the first time that I've really decided to sit down and and share my story and share some of the healing that I went through to see if I could inspire and support other survivors to do the same. I love it. So I had been in the public eye for a good uh, nine, 10 years and the public eye, I'm not famous because you don't, you don't know me, but you know, I'm, I'll get recognized in public sometimes and people want to take their picture with me. And I just kind of like, that's so weird. Cause I'm just me. Right. Right. But um, you know, I'm in the public eye. I have a lot of followers, blah, blah, blah. Right. When I put the post up that led to me writing, love me too. I literally took it down a couple minutes later because oh, I was like, um, maybe I should think about that and put it back up. Or it goes viral. <laughs> yeah, right. And then um, I, you know, I'm a, a person of faith and I woke up that morning with this post-it and I was like, well, I have to think about it. Of course, that little nudge, I now, of course, recognize that that was God saying, put it up. And then there was a message from a friend saying I had to. And I was like, wait, I go and take it to my husband and he looks at me. He's like, you need to post that. I post it. It goes crazy. I have a publishing deal within, you know, hours. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I prefer self-publishing to, I love my publisher. They're great, but 
you know, that's a whole other conversation. But anyway, <laughs> of course, the only reason I had a publishing deal within hours is because I was already a proven author right. with this being my second book. So I'm going to go do my TEDx talk the same week that my book has gone to print, meaning you can't reverse anything <laughs> without paying the print, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's contracts. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly terrifying for mm -hmm. me, who was used to being pretty vulnerable and out there to be like, oh, and so I joked with my family that I should have picked a smaller stage. Yeah, and I, I mean, I literally did feel like I was coming out of some kind mm -hmm. of closet. Absolutely. Because not um, that I carry any shame with it. And I'm assuming like you have already mm -hmm. put that all in a good place because of the wording you chose around it. It's just a big thing to put out there because people would be like, oh, you? Yeah. So yeah. making that assumption, which I was correct, even though you were already an award-winning author and <laughs> award-winning photographer, this is a pretty daring first step into putting your name on it here's this book when not everybody knows the story. So how, what was your process getting there? Sure, it actually was many, many years to get to this point. Um, I had been doing a lot of different things over my healing journey to try to get beyond just what individual and group therapy could bring to me. I really needed some deep body healing. I needed some more um, healing for my mind and I, needed creative expression. I that had gotten stifled a lot when I was a kid going through the, the abuse. And so I wanted to be able to tap into those kind of things. And it wasn't planned. Don't get me wrong. I didn't have a roadmap that I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to try X, then Y, then Z. We're going to bring it together. I'm going to get healed. It's going to be great. No, I had no idea what I was doing, right? Back in the day, there was the courage to heal. It's a, the Bible, it's an amazing book, but there was nothing like a roadmap, a guidebook, a blueprint, anything to say, try these things and see what happens. So basically I ended up writing the book I wish I had when I first Love started. It. Yeah, you know, but I I first started writing about my abuse in any way when I started doing yoga. So yoga was a pivotal practice that I started with and cracked me open, really started releasing all kinds of body memories, how to process all of that. It was a wonderful way to get back in touch with my body, which I had really punished pretty or ignored my entire life. So it was reconnecting with my body. Okay. Let me, let me uh, ask a question here. When you say ignored, are you talking about like, you didn't take care of yourself physically, or are you saying you kind of tried to hide so you wouldn't be a, a target of abuse again? Just give us a little bit more about that. Yeah, those are good questions. And, and both, I would dress in baggy clothes. I cut my hair short. I, I, looking back, I was trying to make myself as androgynous as possible so that I would not catch the eye of any other person that would prey mm. on me. Okay, so. so now I want to dig into that. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh -huh. um, I have a girlfriend that grew up in a, a very... Uh, almost cult-like Christian form of Christianity, mm -hmm. right? Like they didn't talk to anyone outside of this group. And she explained to me one day that a boy said, uh, a man in this, you know, a boy her age in this, this very tight knit, like what I looked at from what she's told me, almost cult-like mm -hmm. that he said, you know, your shirt is too low. And that she said, I was so into what I was being taught that I turned to him and I said, I am so sorry that I brother have violated you by, mm -hmm. you know, showing too much of my skin. And that she totally felt like it was her responsibility. And I'm like, oh my heavens, that's like 17th century. Yeah, really you psycho, know, you know, gaslighting. Yeah. <laughs> right. But parallels of that filtered through our society that we catch the eye. But I like, I put out in my book, you know, nuns have been raped. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing about nuns appearance that says, oh, I want some of that. Right. I mean, yeah, there's nothing about an elementary school kid like my who was molested and sexually assaulted that says, you know, I'm interested in you doing these things to me. You know, I'm not flaunting myself. If any child is sexualized or expressing this kind of of sexuality. They've been taught that. They don't know that. They're not supposed to know anything about that for a long well, time. And we read into it. I was yeah. told, well, you sit on men's laps, so you wanted it. Oh, jeez. Right? Well, no, I'm just, I'm a physically affectionate person. If you've read the Love Languages books, I love hugs and I love being mm -hmm. touched, which made um, being molested a very interesting challenge to overcome because mm -hmm. it was violating the way that I feel love the most purely. 
right, right? Right. But I just really love to hit that point. And obviously you're with me that, and cause you did the catch, you know, catch the mm -hmm. eye with quotations. So mm -hmm. you knew that it was, you know, a false belief, but there are people out there who think that somehow they manifested or asked for it. We need to be really, you're with me. I know on this, just from your body language, mm -hmm. how clear we need to be that this is not something that the victim, even if she's naked, asked for. Yeah. Opportunistic. You were there at the wrong place and they wanted the power over you. And it's really about power. It's really not about sexuality or sex. It's about power. And that was definitely what I was experiencing with my grandfather, who was manipulative, really mm -hmm. um, this wanting This was power. your grandfather that molested you. Yeah, it was my mother's father, my grandfather. And mm -hmm. he was a Lieutenant Colonel in World War II. He was a very militaristic, controlling, uh, and frightening, to be honest, frightening individual. And although he never verbally threatened me, I intuitively knew you don't cross him or bad things are going to happen. Yeah. So, and, and just, I always felt like he was trying to devour me. It just, mm. And I think that there, I assume that he probably was abused himself and that he had this empty dark place in his soul that he was trying to fill. And he went after the women in my family that were creative and intelligent and had this spark. And he went after those and he abused those types of women in our family. So that was really his insecurity with his own manliness or something. I mean, it, that sounds like you could have a huge discussion of hypothesizing with a therapist about why <laughs> he would go after not just any female, but those that had the spark. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, okay. So you were not the only person in the family to be molested mm -hmm. and feel free to not answer since it's just not you and I sitting on the couch, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have to protect other people's story and, and their privacy. Um, have they chosen to be open other people in the family about what has happened or are you standing alone in this, you know, I, I'm going to say accusation and quotation marks. Yeah, I mean, I had discussions with uh, other people in the family that we talked about it, what had happened. We had speculation about some people in the, the, the generation before us, whether or not it had happened. And there were never any conversations had with that generation to know. Um, but I'm the only one that's really kind of stepped forward publicly in this way to share my story. And for me, it this book is not just like a memoir. I, I'm one of those people that had a very hard Excellent. time remembering yeah. things, right? If I look back, it's trauma, brain, PTSD brain, where I did not form a lot of memories and I don't have access to a lot of memories, particularly in the timeline of my childhood. When did what happen? I, I couldn't tell you. I have some very explicit memories, very strong memories, and I know what happened to me. I know how I felt. I know how it rolled out in my life. But I didn't have enough to write a memoir. I had been writing poetry as I had gone through the yoga about my experience, but I never felt I had enough, in air quotes, enough material to make a book until I started learning about Dr. Larry Nessar and the Olympic gymnast and mm -hmm. the abuse that was happening. And when I learned that, something inside of me just, my heart cracked open. And it was a light went off, you know, a message from the universe or God saying, you could help people like this. You have done so much to heal. You may not have a lot of things about your abuse story, but that's not the important piece. What you have is the healing story. And that's what I try to put together in my book is you're going to learn about my history and how things impacted me, but you're going to learn a lot about all the different things that I did and why they helped me. And it's not a 30-day program, a seven-step you're healed, because we know healing is not linear and it's not on anyone's time frame but your own. But it's my way of sharing possibilities. I ask people to grab a journal. I go through and I'll share, well, I did yoga. This is why it helped me. This was my experience. Here's some I want to I want to stop you there for a minute because you brought put out so many great thoughts. I want to make sure we're conversing about it. So one, I am actually really against memoirs on this topic. Mm. meaning journal entries. There are things that, um, so for example, I had a miscarriage. Um, I've, had, I've had several, um, but there may be four people. There's no shame around this miscarriage, mm -hmm. but there may be four or five people that I have actually told the details of how that went down mm -hmm. because it is painful mm -hmm. and it's painful to the person listening. So I think a lot of times people wonder why victims of abuse have not shared their story more 
Well, because it's painful and it's mm -hmm. painful to person listen, and we might still be processing it. Mm -hmm. And we have a societal shame and right. There's all these different layers. And so I just kind of use that analogy with the miscarriage to point mm -hmm. out that it is what it is. This has so many different more layers in it. And I don't think memoirs are helpful for the public consumption, mm -hmm. how we overcome, which is what you were doing. That is the important part. Because right. people are always surprised why I didn't tell more of what exactly happened to me in my mm -hmm. own book. And so I congratulate you for not doing a memoir. <laughs> right. The second part of that that I think we want to hit is, you know, children, in order to, let's say you wanted to go, um, you know, have your grandfather, you know, receive justice for what he did, right? Children can't remember all the details. They can't remember the when and the where and what they were wearing. And so it behooves the parents, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, that part of how we protect our children is not with the assumption that we can necessarily protect them. Mm -hmm. We hope, and we're going to do all we can to get information out there, how to protect kids and to know the signs, but it's very likely that it will still happen despite your best efforts. And you have to be the parent that's big enough that when you realize that has happened, you take your child who is traumatized and you take them to the hospital. If you ever want to have justice, you have to have DNA evidence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is going to be traumatic for the child and they're going to have to go to therapy being angry at you for taking them to the hospital in addition to therapy for what happened to them right exactly <laughs> a lot of therapy and, that's going to but be you you cannot put responsibility on the child to garner the evidence and nor do we want false accusations being out there destroying good people's lives sure. male and female perpetrators so that being said back to your grandfather um has anyone in your family validated that this happened and is willing to stand with you publicly or are they all keeping it quiet? Uh, I think that I need to address uh, maybe an assumption in our conversation. My grandfather died when I was a freshman in high school. So there, there is no um, way or need or possibility of confronting him. I assumed he was passed because yeah, being a yeah. World War II vet. Yeah, um, yeah. Most World War II vets were very sad that we have lost, <laughs> um, you know, cause it's a sad thing. We're losing those stories of the war. Right. But for you as a freshman in high school, you're already coming into your own physically. Mm -hmm. And that was how you were able to escape. I'm assuming it happened until yeah. his death. Yeah, and, and and that was my escape. And in fact, my, my brain protected me, my mind protected me when I was a child that it did not let me really realize what was happening. When it happened, I could look back and see I dissociated from my body, but other times my brain was just holding it away from my conscious thoughts. I knew I did not want to be alone with him. I knew he was scary. There was this ick factor about being near him. You know, you want to run up to your grandparents and like you said, hugs and kisses and lovings. And I was like, don't let him touch me. I, there's some, you know, there's just, I knew something was wrong with him. And what came out was in nightmares. That's how I express. I had this recurring nightmare of a monster trying to come get me. And that's how I could acknowledge it. But until he died, and at that point, my brain, my mind said, okay, open up the box, here it comes out. And I was like, what? I thought it was crazy, you know? I, I was just yeah. crazy. I share in my book that I actually had a nervous breakdown as a child. We didn't call it that then, but I do think that, um, you know, hello, I just said that bluntly. That was something that like dear, dear friends of mine I hadn't discussed because I processed it and moved on and all that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But I, from my experience of talking to those that have been victimized in the past, and I like to draw that distinction because we're no longer, if we're not currently being victimized, mm -hmm. that that's a that's a, a a celebration that should be had. And then the survivor is the the remnant of what is left over. The person mm -hmm. still processing it, right? And then mm -hmm. you and I are advocates. We're the person who's been there and are working to lift other people up. And I yeah. like to go off the literal definitions from the dictionary. Yeah. So having been victimized. Uh, I think it's really a, a kind thing of our mental brains that we don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And I've had people ask me if I want to go do, you know, therapy to help bring these things forward. And I'm like, no, no, they've come forward as they needed to enough. Mm -hmm. And I deal with them. The last, the last cognitive memory that I have, or I should say resurfacing was when I was in a wheelchair and this realization that if this person chose to come into my life physically, they're still alive as far as I know, that uh, I would not be able to physically fight them off, which had been kind of my coping strategy. Like mm -hmm. I worked to become very strong. Mm -hmm. 
and I had to deal with that new reality. Yeah, scary. And coming up with new coping skills of what I would do. And of course, most of it was about protecting my my daughter. Completely a made up scenario, but I had an emotional response to because I now had a new reality. Our bodies hold those things, but also can release those things without us having to process them in certain very, I don't need to know what date it happened on. Right. My body and my mind, there's a beautiful correlation that helps keep us sane from day to day that we don't remember everything. Yeah. And that's what the yoga did for me. I didn't have to go and relive all of the abuse. I just know that there was a lot of emotional stuff in my hip and that, you know, the, the crying, the, the feeling of vulnerability, it was just all emotional things that I could tap into. And when I did the poses and it was released, so I was processing the emotional residue of the abuse, not necessarily remembering the exact you know, movie scene version of what had happened. And so I think there's layers. There's obviously layers of ways that we can um, experience that residue and peel it off and get, get it so that, you know, we're getting down more and more to our authentic self without that residue being present. And I think since we're having a, a public conversation, and I love that you and I have just met, we're doing this because there's such this like, whoa, they just met and there's so much parallels between mm -hmm. what they're having, you know, we didn't script this out. Yeah. Um, that those who I hear that a lot from people who are in the survivor stage being like, well, and they're almost minimizing their experience because they can't give you specifics. Mm -hmm. And it's not required except in the court of law, which I think is fair mm -hmm. because sadly there's too many false accusations out there because we can't be, we can't, you know, it's not the minority report that we get penalized for what could happen. You only really get penalized mm -hmm. for what actually did happen and the burden is to prove it. Um, that being said, that's why making it, um, you know, children being perpetrated upon is such a toxic and terrible thing. And I love the empathy that you gave to your grandfather that he probably had been molested. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to figure all that out to just kind of say, okay, but we're going to, I think the reason it's on the rise is because we haven't talked about it because the victims become perpetrators. Right. It's a cycle that continues unless someone goes through a healing journey and makes the decision that I, I'm not going to stop it. It's going to stop with me and I'm going to heal so that I can do and be the person that I was meant to be, that I was put on this planet to be and not let the past define me and how I live in the world. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to ask a personal question because since we're such old friends, <laughs> near like, and dear. Oh. Yeah. You're like, Oh no. So, um, I was asked a question one time, how I managed to not marry in reaction to, and it was mm -hmm. because of great male role models that I had in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. That I didn't marry someone like him. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I've talked to a lot of abuse victims or, you know, that are survivors that, ended up having really complicated relationships with the same sex of those who perpetrated them. So mm. men that have a problem with females because the female was the abuser and women mm. that have a hard time with males because they were the abuser or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Did, have you looked back and seen some of those issues or were you able to process that before you chose to create a, I'm assuming you're married. Yes. Yep. 20 plus years. Okay. <laughs> so would, would, did you, were you able to process those things before you began that relationship with your spouse or? I think I did as far as uh, not getting involved with someone who would be re-perpetrating my victimhood. I okay. So a, you went the route of, you know, the not being over-sexualized after. Oh, absolutely. The, the victims <laughs> tend to go where they're the, the door's mm -hmm. already been open. Let's keep the door open. Or they mm -hmm. shut that door so tightly shut that they're prudes, you know, what they would be called a prude, which I, I did pretty close I, to that. <laughs> I, I, that's the route that I took as well. And, um, I'm not going to say which one is better because I don't think there's it, the path you take is the path you take, mm -hmm. but I, just because mine and yours may fit in with a religious standard doesn't make it a better path. It's just the path of how we handled that yeah just that's where i felt safe that was my way of being safe and that was my way of being in control other people find control of you know being out there really sexually but i i was very much about being in control of my body and knowing who and when i was going to share it with i wanted that to be very private very intimate 
And I went through a few relationships where they were, eh, they were okay. They weren't so great. I don't think there were any damaging relationships. Uh, I was very fortunate that the universe put in my path a lot of people that helped me on my healing journey from a friend who got me into Survivors as an Incest Anonymous and in therapy for the first time from a yoga teacher, male yoga teacher who guided me through the process of having yoga become this wonderful practice and, and helped me heal in that way. And then by the time I got, I met my husband, um, I had processed a lot. Now my husband and I met and then we're, we're trying to get together. It fell apart. A few years went by and then we started communicating just as friends and really became friends first and then got to be good friends. And then the, the romance started coming again. And I just really felt that I was drawn to him as a, a soul partner, that there was something. So, you know, he's this big bear of a man and I felt really physically protected by him. But when you get to know him, he's a teddy bear inside and it's just the sweetest thing. Which a lot of big guys are teddy bears yeah. and they're yeah. just trying to tread softly and everybody's judging him because they're huge. Yeah, <laughs> and he, he yeah. had great boundaries. He was very thoughtful. Um, he... Every time I'd be working on my, my, my stuff and I'd be like, oh, I made this great breakthrough. I'm with it. And he's like, well, well, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you've already thought about all of this for you. And, you know, you're already there. You know, I just spent all this time getting there. So, you know, he was always incredibly encouraging. If I wanted to do yoga three days a week and he's like, it helps you go for it. You know, he didn't feel like he had to tell me what to do or how to heal. He was supportive. He didn't have to do the healing with me or be in the yoga class with me, but he could say, this is what works for you. I really see how it helps you go for it. And he was always there supporting and encouraging me. He was encouraging me from the very beginning to write the book, you know? Awesome. Which, you know, I mean, you just described uh, an empathetic, loving marriage that does regard, I mean, some people have trauma because their parent was a yeller. Some people have trauma because, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, pick a, a thousand different things people could have trauma for. Um, but trauma around sexuality can be very difficult for people to make an intimate because part of being married, ideally, well, I mean, that's, the, I mean, if you listen to popular media, people say that married people don't have sex. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, I disagree. You know, it's nice to not have to figure out who that's going to be with. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, you know, you just described, you know, whatever people are having to overcome, we have to listen and be there for people. Mm -hmm. For me, with my spouse, um, I had gone to a therapy. I had, I used my modality of healing as the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so I knew that I had already placed that there and had done the therapy that I needed to, that I told my husband, I said, I don't think this is going to be an issue. My fiance at the time, mm -hmm. but if it is, I commit to going to therapy to work on it. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for me, it has not been something that other than some, Oh, wait, okay. There's a memory. Okay. You know, just kind of here and there, but it's never been something that's been in the way of our intimacy. Mm -hmm. And I make the point in my book that even though the sexual act is the same, mm -hmm. the intent is so different Absolutely, that they couldn't be more separate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's helped me have a lot more empathy for what seems things look like on the outside is not, except for when it comes to children. Like if I see a couple that uh, doesn't seem like they should be together, you know, her English isn't really great or whatever, you know, something like that and people are kind of judging it. I have a cousin in that format. I'm like, you know, human intimacy isn't about, you know, all the words we use. It's how, you know, how we treat each other, the touches, and there's it's so the much love. more to it. It's the love that's expressed the, and the respect and the friendship. And, and it's not about vocabulary, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, because um, so um, having been someone who experienced that as a child, and I'm assuming that your parents, did they not know or did they know? I don't think they really knew. What It would happen when we would go spend the summers with my grandparents. And so my parents would, uh, we would all meet, all the different cousins would come and stay for different periods of time. And my grandparents were retired uh, in a house by the lake and it was skiing and then boating and fishing and all kinds of fun summer right. activities. Yeah. And then these would be at Cotton Grandpa's. So does, do your parents, are they still living? Yeah. And, and they know about it. We've discussed and it. They, and they've, um, they've uh, stood behind you and supported you. And, oh, absolutely. And that's absolutely. wonderful. Because yeah. you know that that is rare. Yes. I don't know if rare is the right word, but if they were to do a statistical analysis, I'm assuming from my 
you know, very data collected. I'm joking because I'm not a data cruncher, but it feels like it's probably only 30% of us that have that family belief and support. Yeah, and I think part of it was that it it came out much later. I, I didn't share that until I was probably in my 30s. Um, I just wasn't ready. I, I felt a lot of responsibility because you don't want, the shame was still there enough and the responsibility of, I don't want this to impact my parents' marriage and I don't want there to be a blame fest. And, and it turned out that it wasn't that at all. And that's one of the things I talk about in my book is who you should tell. And then I talk about the different people in my life and how I made conscious decisions to continue to have relationships with, with them, including my, my mother and father, including my grandmother after my grandfather died. That and I, she didn't know. Your grandmother didn't know. I don't think she did. It's hard to say. It's hard well, to say. And you know, generationally, knew. I mean, we, you know, we always want, I, I think we have to balance when we look at recent history to ancient mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. to saying what they should have done with a modern eye. Oh, absolutely. You know, because um, obviously they should have let women vote. I mean, like what? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But their, you know, eugenics was also at play during that time. And they, one of the reasons that women, they didn't think women should be able to vote is because our brain, our brains were smaller, which they thought we weren't as intelligent. And we'd be becoming infertile if we, if we. Right, vote. right. <laughs> Thinking too much might burn up our ovaries or something. Yes. So, you know, you know, we can look at things on a surface level. So not to excuse it, but maybe to explain it, mm -hmm. that I don't think culturally that men and women really talked about their sexual feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that where, you know, we have the freedom in today's world that I can flirt with my husband and say, Hey, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be on the podcast. Cause you know, that's private between my husband and I, mm -hmm. right. But I don't think from what you see culturally, historically, that a woman being raised when your grandmother could be raised, that she could be an aggressor in any way or say when she wanted it or was even told that she could enjoy sex, let alone think about where he might be putting his sexual energy. Yeah, and he was so controlling. I mean, he would dole out money for her to go grocery shopping. He had absolute control over her. You know, she was a teacher and was earning income, but he was an absolute control freak about every aspect of what she did. And so it's not surprising that that dynamic was there and that, that you know, he, he was able to hide things from her or that she felt that she just couldn't know. She wasn't what, you know, we would now describe as an abusive relationship. Mm, yes, absolutely. There's many, many ways to abuse people. And he, I think he's probably a narcissist. So she probably had to deal with that situation. Uh -huh. and, you know, people are complex. Relationships are complex. And, and our and, brains are complex. Yes. And we don't deal with this stuff. Um, I'm aware of someone. I'm being vague because I'm, I don't have the right to out their story. Right. That was severely um, molested, abused. As, it was very clear to me that that has happened. And yet they choose to turn around and not abuse in the same way, but are definitely narcissistic. Mm. Um, it may be a little bit on sociopath on how they like tormenting those around them. Mm. And it's been interesting to me to see how really there were the same coin, she and I. Mm -hmm. It's that she made a different decision on how to process her grief than mm -hmm. I did. Or maybe didn't even process it to me that that screams there I am not have not processed it and if you don't process this stuff, it comes out. It yes. comes out in a lot of ways that are very negative. And, you know, we, you got to heal that wound or it festers and it comes out in pain, bad ways. The, 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 that great book, you know, I think the title being, you know, pain buried alive never dies. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm very visual. So I am like, we can deal with it now. Now as an adult, obviously mm -hmm. not as a child, I don't put that on children. I can deal with these feelings now, or I can deal with them later in an unpredictable way. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times that the pain that we feel, or no, let me put it this way. The reactions that we have have nothing to do with the present moment. Yes. Um, the guest that I had on that will be airing right before this. She, I love this so much. She taught at Shayla Don. She talked about, is this present Shayla or past Shayla responding mm -hmm. to this, mm -hmm. which I'm like, uh, adopting that because it's such a really easy way to be like, why am I having this guttural reaction? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously for you and I, when we hear about somebody being molested, there is a guttural reaction. What do we do with that? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that's why uh, yoga helped me a lot with body work for releasing the body memories and then the emotions and to heal my body and to become connected to my body. But meditation was really critical for me to start doing what you described and being able to identify, is this my grandfather's voice? Is this the perfectionist Denise voice? What is the true authentic voice? Can I be present, not get pulled back into the past and ruminating on it, not being anxious about the future? really peeling those away so that I could be present and peaceful and have my own authentic voice being heard. And it was critical to learn that because otherwise you're just overwhelmed with these messages and you might be reacting, like you said, to something that happened to you five, 10, 20 years ago without having done the work to recognize that that is what's coming through. And we have the, we have the, definitely have the right to have a reaction to these things, Mm -hmm. but when we don't have a conscious plan of how we're going to handle things, our brain starts going kind of crazy with it. Like Mm -hmm. I described when I was in that wheelchair, I wasn't really in danger, but there was an emotional reaction until I had a plan, I was feeling vulnerable. Absolutely. And so made up scenario, made up solution. And my brain's like, okay, good. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I got this. I got this. Mm -hmm. So going back just a minute to the fact that you, you talked about doing this um fantasy book that you did oh yeah mm-hmm. and um i love that because you know just talking about this was kind of like this early processing of it mm-hmm. but without putting trauma on people because i'm assuming you didn't describe the abuse but just this character's yeah. experience of overcoming well yeah and it really you you can read it and there's nothing about abuse in it whatsoever right what it is is that there's um a gal who is a younger stronger version of me obviously you put yourself into the main character so grace is the main character she gets supernatural powers and she can talk to ghosts and uh, communicate with them but there's a serial killer who's out there hurting girls both homeless girls and prostitutes and of course i modeled this serial killer after my grandfather i'm like my friend was like, you have a villain in your book, model after some characteristic of someone you kind of know. You don't have to make it exactly that. I'm like, aha, I know an evil person. Ta-da, the villain, my grandfather. And then, you know, he was hurting all these girls. And at one point in the book, I, I had to name the various girls. And I thought, well, maybe if, if this villain is kind of my grandfather, maybe these could kind of be his girls that he abused. Should I name them? I'm like, no, I just didn't feel comfortable with that. And so I went on the way and wrote the book and I, you know, they had an uh, opportunity to confront him, overcome him, they win. And then after I finished writing that, I looked back and I'm like, holy camoli, that yeah, really it seeped was my out. story. <laughs> it seeped out. Yeah. It's funny because um, my first book being on confidence, obviously the real story of how I had to get to being a confident person is having to work through processing all of these things. And yet there's only one little paragraph that I kind of hint at, this isn't love, this is love. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't feel like it was something that had to be discussed in great detail. But with the Me Too movement, love that it's being talked about, but I don't love that it's being encapsulated in this anger. And obviously mm-hmm. talking about yoga and the meditation, all that, I'm, I have a religious faith. I'm assuming you're more new age. Is that a correct way to say it? Yeah. Uh, Buddhism, uh, esoteric Hinduism. Yeah. Which Buddhism, I don't think is new age. I mean, that's one of the oldest <laughs> religions on yeah, the planet. 3, years. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting to me. And I love this fact and I love sharing it. So frequent listeners to the podcast, you're going to hear me say this a lot of times that it's interesting that every religion and every healing modality has some path of redemption. And so you can always know if you're on a good path, if there is a place where you can deal with shame. And you can always know if you're listening to the darkness, which I call Satan, right? The bad vibrations, right? You can always know if he's saying to hold on to that shame, Mm. right? Because healing is part of what God wants for us. And so you would say, you would say like the universe, right? Yeah, and I would even say in Buddhism, they talk about original perfection mm-hmm. and that all the work that we're trying to do is get the dust off the mirror so that you can actually get back to that original yes, perfection. Yes, which I would call that the soul. Mm-hmm. And that is why, you know, when we do this to children, we we're muddying up their original perfection. And that's mm-hmm. why children are so pure and so great and do make them ready, ready, um, ready victims for those that choose to groom children for that. So having having this happen to you. What are some of the things you did that parented differently, not blaming your parents because they didn't know different time. I don't want it to be like that, you know, that kind of energy around it. 
Um, what did you do to parent differently? Um, did you allow sleepovers, you know, those kinds of things? Well, actually, we, we never had children. Um, oh, okay. We did, yeah, we did try for How a while. How do you aunt differently? Uh, yeah, just being really aware. I mean, I, it's a balance because I don't want to overreact. I don't want to bring that energy of my fear of things happening to the situation. So it was really just being present and taking cues from my sister because you want to respect and honor the way that they're parenting. So okay, okay you them. get five stars on the forehead for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you get five stars on the forehead for that. I have a, a sister-in-law that is now passed, but she uh, lived a very different lifestyle than me. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. And one day my niece said to me, my mom really hates you. Mm. And I have a really firm policy that you never critique a parent unless it is abuse mm -hmm. um, to a child because you're undermining their sense of authority and safety. Right. And for good or for bad, those parents, unless there is a line of abuse being crossed, it is not for you to say, oh, I would have parented differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I had to kind of dig deep and I was like, well, I'll tell you what your mom and I both agree on. We both love you. Mm -hmm. and you know just just left it at that because um that's you all know, that's it was necessary just, yeah yeah it's all so you get five stars because it's something that i've had to work really hard at not critiquing children <laughs> and their parents well don't I get have, me wrong in my head i had my own story about what i would have done but you know to, <laughs> to to her and you know and everyone's doing the best they can everyone's yeah. doing the best they can with Amen. what they know at the time absolutely and uh, you know, it's harder to babysit children that aren't your own because you do know the nuances of them mm -hmm. and opposite. It's hard to babysit your own kids or tend to your own kids sometimes because they're there all the time. Yeah. And so and they know you your know, buttons. <laughs> they know you, I, I joke that the twos are about, you know, exploring the world, you know, pulling the pots and pans out, you know, I mean, the human development stuff's there um, to the threes are about testing your boundaries not the world's anymore it's about testing your boundaries <laughs> and so how consistent you with so that's where ants and you know caring loving people to our children are so valuable because the kid has to figure out new buttons and give mm. your buttons a rest and so they're <laughs> we children do need those other people in their life and i'm Sorry if I bringing up that you weren't able to have children. I that's that's a painful thing. No, no, it it just I just took it as that was just the way it was meant to happen. And, and ironically, when I told my mom, well, we've tried, and we didn't really feel like we wanted a family so much that we would pursue artificial means to make it happen. And I was like, eh, I guess that's not for us. We had plenty of siblings who were having children. There was lots of kids in the family. And when I told my parents. Yeah, I just don't think it's going to be something that we do. And my mom said, oh, I never thought you would have kids. It just didn't seem like you. I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's no surprise to people that I'm not going to be having kids, you know, but it was okay. It, you know, that was, it was no big deal. And, you know, being, being able to find ways to be with all of the, the families, kids, and just for me, finding ways to express myself and, and show love either to at my church or to my friends, to my husband, to the family, to our lovely pets, you know, whatever it is, there's expression of love that can be shared. And I think just even my creativity is an expression of my love for life. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, choosing to write a book on sexual abuse. Oh, excuse me. I made a word hiccup. So I'm going to say it again. Um, choosing to write a book on sexual abuse was something that I had to go to my kids and say, hey, you cool with this mom doing it so at least you didn't have to have that conversation that's true that's you true. know <laughs> and it sounds like your spouse was amazing and your family has been uh you know you know supporting you in this in this mm -hmm. version of of something that's probably not really comfortable for them and so you know they they get stars on their forehead for that as well right yeah and i think the way it kind of worked out is i did not tell my parents i was writing the book until I made the decision to actually publish, that I got far enough along, I knew it was finished, I had the editing done, and I knew it was going to come. I actually had tried all through COVID 2020 to get down to Florida where they're retired and have an in-person conversation about it, but COVID bump it again, another three months, another three months, never got down there, and I thought, well, I need to tell them because I've set a publishing date for myself, and so it, before that, I had actually written a few articles that got on Psychology Today's blog about COVID-19 and self-help and self-care for abuse and survivors and 
so they, I had sent that out to them and they had read it and they had seen what I was trying to do was tell people things I thought, share with people things I thought would be able to help them heal. And so I had at least one, I now have three out there in that vein, but I had that first one and they read it. My mom said, oh my gosh, you know, your, your comments on how to deal with anxiety, that really helped me. I'm going to practice some of that. And, I, and so when I came to them to talk about the book, I started the conversation around you know, those articles I wrote to help people heal, I've actually written a book that's a little more about that. And then we started talking about the book and the parts of the book and they were thrilled. They were so love that. Yeah. They were so excited that I wanted to do that and wanted to share that I could take what happened to me and transform it. And they were so proud, you know, I, yeah, that's I didn't, great. that's awesome. And, you know, you can be a very supportive person. Like my parents were incredibly supportive, but you know, I don't blame them that they would have preferred probably on some level for the book not to come out. Didn't, you know, go against it, but you know, it's just, it's a very private thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in all, in all honesty, it's my story, but it's also my parents' story because they were groomed as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's a very painful thing to have to be out there because my mother still, I think processes that she should have done better. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's not her fault. You know, that was hundred percent on you know, it is so always the abuser's fault. Exactly. Period. And so I, I might be an advocate for sexual abuse and my mom is still probably in the survivor phase because mm -hmm. she loves her baby girl so much and doesn't want that to have happened and all that kind of thing. But, you know, um, to answer the question I asked you, you know, I definitely parented differently, not out of fear, but out of knowledge. And we have to get ourselves educated about these things mm -hmm. and your book, my book, there's resources out there. Um, that, you know, if parents are worried about this, they need to start getting the information. So they're not just being like, you can't talk to people mm -hmm. because your story and my story both prove the fact, and this, this is a statistic that it's 83% of those that are molested. So we're talking about children that are assaulted, even molested, um, are by someone they know. Yes. And so when we teach our children stranger danger, and I hit this strong in my book, you're probably locking out the person that your kid might feel the most comfortable talking to. Yeah. The first person I ever told that this had happened to me, sadly, was the neighbor kid. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways I parented my children on how to deal with this was realizing that they might be the first line. Mm -hmm. And I go into my book, how to do that and everything. But what do you feel like is one of the best, why somebody should buy your book? Like one of the best tips you're giving in there. I think it gives you a lot of opportunity to try different things because again, we've talked about how every person's abuse is different. Every person's healing journey is different. And I'm giving the, if you're beginning your healing journey, I tell you how to find a therapist, what questions to ask, how to connect with groups. I have a whole resource section, but then I'm throwing out all these things and I'm explaining why they work for me, but I'm not saying that they're necessarily going to work for you. I'm asking you to engage and question and explore and I'm trying to be a mentor on the page to give you a workbook, a blueprint to explore your healing journey and encouraging you to find what works for you. So it's a, a gentle guidance about opportunities that you could explore, but it's also inspiring and encouraging you to find what works for you. I love it. Okay. So Denise, I'm so glad that we go way back <laughs> and that you consented to be on the podcast. Um, I'd like to ask you, because this is a share your hotness podcast, what is your fuel, that daily thing that you need to keep going? It really, for me, is being creative, whether it's, it's the photography, the, the painting, the writing, whatever it is. Clearly and, an accomplished writer. You've done a lot of writing. <laughs> yeah. And, and also sharing that, um, the, the, I love to teach contemplative photography classes, art classes. So sharing that with other people to get their fuel going it is something that really I enjoy a lot. I love that, which obviously feeds into why you wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So what is your heat? I think it is writing and sharing my story to inspire others to go on their own healing journey. Your unique signature. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so as a mom who loves being a mom, who just thinks it's the best thing in the whole entire world being a mom, right? I look, you know, sometimes women like you, they're like, oh, it's so sad you couldn't have kids. But clearly you've been blessed with an additional dose of creativity. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to have children in that way mm -hmm. to bless others and to, you know, to give birth to such amazing, um, 
you know, nurturing and creative create creativity in your life. So I, you know, congrats for that. That's really awesome. I love that. Um, you've chosen to live a very unselfish life. Um, and then what's your oxygen you got to take in moment by moment? Always just being open to exploring uh, new things, particularly new creative things. And also I am constantly trying to, to work on myself, listening to podcasts, reading books, whatever I can to explore new ways of thinking and being so that I don't grow stagnant. I mean, that's why I think we're here beyond the healing work that we need to do as survivors to become thrivers, which is what the word I like to use for that final stage. Um, it's just the nature of human beings to want to be growing, exploring, and improving themselves all the time. And, and I think that that's really what I try to do through creativity and just whatever resources I can find to support my growth. I love it. I love it. Such great tips. And I'm so excited to have you in my circle. So let's definitely connect on social media. And we'll be sharing about your book in the comments. So send that to me so we can share that. And, um, you know, all the resources that people can have because, um, you know, your book will connect with people that maybe my book won't, or maybe they need both of them layered on top of if so, there is somebody out there that is going through trying to process what has happened to them, get all the learning, all the things, because you're going to pick up different gems from different sources. Mm -hmm. And if it's um, the energy or it's God, we are worth the work to get to a place of healing. And the only person who can do that, and I know you agree with me, Denise, is we have to do that work on ourselves. It's 100% their fault, the abuser. Mm -hmm. But it unfortunately lies on us to do the work on ourselves. And that's not fair. Somebody else made a mess. But don't hold off giving, asking for permission from life or the world or your abuser for you to take the time to heal for yourself. So that's awesome you did that. And I love the parallels between our two stories and that um, fulfilling that you put that in the title of your book says a lot about how you choose to take care of yourself. Be a thriver. You're, you're worth it. Paint your own masterpiece of your life. You, you've got the colors and the brush. Go for it. Spoken like an artist. I love it. <laughs> so thank you so much, Denise, for being on this episode of Share Your Hotness with Linda Green. Thank, thank you, you so much. Uh -huh. The Share Your Hotness podcast is produced by Van Garrett Media. Lita Green is the host and creator of the podcast. Chris Van Garrett is the editor, producer, and music director. Shayla Dawn is our research coordinator. Join us next week for another episode of the Share Your Hotness podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media.